Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. And I know we have several kids here today, and I do have a tendency to be goofy. I'm not sure. It just depends on how that leads. Uh, if your kids want to fall asleep, fine. If they scream out, I'll just consider that an amen, okay? So I'm glad they're here. It's a sign of life within a church when, a, when you hear a kid holler out. Um, but uh, oftentimes I put them to sleep because that's what my voice does. And if I see you sleeping, I'm just going to think you're praying. It makes me feel better about myself. <laughs> so... Um, let me just read for you what I have, and then, and then we'll get into the context of, of today's message. Tensions with Russia and North Korea hang heavy in the air. Hints of war and anger abound across our globe. With the clash of ideologies, the stability of governments and world peace hang in the balance. With war a present reality, with foreign enemies abroad... The lives of men and women in uniform hang in the balance while trying to promote civility through strength in volatile regions across the world. A pandemic sweeping the globe, originating from China, affects millions of people, leaving a wake of deaths and stuns the general public and leaves masses panicked and afraid. The murder of an African-American man shocks an already divided nation. Nationwide protests, civil unrest, and riots due to racial tensions, social justice issues, and government corruption cause upheaval in the social fabric of the United States of America. More polarized than ever, the presidential election year is fraught with name-calling, dirt-slinging, flaming rhetoric, propaganda from both sides of the aisle. It seems that a third-party option is a viable solution, but who really knows? However, in the midst of all the chaos and the craziness of the world, history is made by the United States as NASA launches a manned rocket into space. Does all this sound familiar? You want to know what year it is? What year was I speaking of? 1968. In 1968, 52 years ago, tensions with the Soviet Union, or uh, what we call Russia today, increase as the Soviet armed forces invade occupied Czechoslovakia. Haven't heard that one in a while, have we? Uh, Reinstituting a hardline communist rule in a time known as the Prague Spring. In 1968, some 15 years after the Korean War, North Korea captures the United States Navy intelligence vessel USS Pueblo, imprisoning 83 of the crew members in a POW camp for nearly 11 months before they are renegotiated to be released. In 1968, a virus known as the Hong Kong flu, originating in China, sweeps the globe, causing between one and four million deaths that year, according to best estimates. In 1968, the murder of Martin Luther King Jr. by James Earl Ray stuns an already polarized nation during the height of the civil rights era. And due 
uh, to the already intensified climate of unrest with the Vietnam War at the time, students and young adults from all across the nation and even the globe protest and riot for weeks on end, injuring many people. Some people get shot and killed. Businesses are destroyed and the public places are in upheaval. In 1968, as the self-proclaimed champion of what would be later dubbed the silent majority, those Americans who rejected the radical, liberal, and rebellious spirit of the time, Republican candidate Richard Nixon led the polls for most of the general election that season. The race tightened in the last weeks after Lyndon Johnson halted air attacks in North Vietnam, which benefited the Democrat candidate Herbert Humphrey. However, Nixon triumphed on election day with a comfortable electoral college lead despite a razor-thin margin of victory in the popular vote. The third-party candidate, George Wallace, a former Alabama governor, captured 13.5% of the vote that year and getting five southern states to vote for him. Finally, in 1968, three astronauts... Jim Lovell, Bill Anders, and Frank Borman aboard Apollo 8 became the first persons to orbit the moon after breaking speeds of over 24,000 miles an hour to break free from the Earth's gravitational pull. The Apollo 8 crew circled the moon 10 times on Christmas Eve that year. There was a lot going on. I mean, I, I was reading that this week, and I heard a radio personality talk about the eerie similarities between 1968 and then 52 years later, 2020, about what was going on in culture. And, it, it, and, it, and it's a wake-up call in some sense to remind us that there's nothing new under the sun, is there? been processing over the past two and a half months the chaos that has ensued in our culture and globally with the global pandemic we now call coronavirus or COVID-19 that has sent us into a bit of a tailspin. And many of us are still in fear over that, and rightly so if you are in an at-risk environment or an at-risk uh, health issue, right? But then in, in the midst of all of this, just heaping onto this, Racial tensions, which have existed forever in our country, have found another rupture point with the senseless death of a man by the name of George Floyd, who was choked to death in Minnesota by a cop, who rightly so is being convicted on second-degree murder charges. Nobody agrees with that. But I'm guessing most of us wouldn't agree with riots and injuring other people and kicking somebody's head like a football either who's laying lifeless on a street. And so I've been really reasoning through this and I realize this is a taboo subject. This is a very polarizing issue. The coronavirus is a polarizing issue. And as I was thinking about what should we be talking about going into June when we come back together is this idea of fear. What is fear? Because here's where I've, I've really come to grips with the fact that the problems that we're seeing today are symptomatic of a deeper-rooted issue. And see, as a church, we should know what that deeper-rooted issue is. We call it sin in the church. And what is sin? Sin perpetuates violence. It perpetuates prejudice and discrimination. It perpetuates all sorts of unholy and unhealthy things within a public what is the solution to sin and fear and death within the culture? 
or within our own lives. You see, Jesus, who conquered sin and death on the cross and through the empty tomb, that's where our only hope lies. And we could say, well, our only hope lies in changing this or doing that. Our hope lies in our culture coming back to God. I want to talk about fear today. I want to talk about really the issue of fear in our lives because I think, I know I have in the past two and a half months, have had to wrestle with this issue of fear. What does the Bible have to say about fear? What is fear? What does it do to a culture, a people, an individual? What does fear perpetuate within a society, within a home? We're going to talk about those things today. And, and, and here's the interesting thing. When we talk about fear, there are actually multiple words for fear in the Bible. In the original languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, which are 66 books of the Bible were originally written, there are several different words for fear. How many words for fear do we have in the United States, in English language? One. Same thing for love. How many words for love do we have? One. I can love a hot dog, I can love my real dog, I can love my family, with but they're all, we know those to be different kinds of love, right? But Greek and Hebrew have multiple different types of words for love. So there's a little bit of shortcoming for our language skills in English because when we try to translate from one of the scriptures into English language and we only have one word that maybe fits, we don't really get the depth of a passage. But there are two types of fear that are dominant in scripture that are spoken of. One fear is good, one fear is bad. And we're gonna break those down today. What does uh, Webster's Dictionary say about fear? What do you think? Let me look. And this is the old 1800s Webster's Dictionary from Daniel Webster himself. He says, it is a painful emotion or a passion excited by an expectation of evil or the apprehension of impending danger. And now in Daniel Webster's oldest dictionary, one of his original ones, he actually would add scriptural perspective of that word. In scripture, he says, Fear is used to express filial or familial type of, 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 uh, of fear or slavish fear. So filial or slavish fear. In good men, the fear of God is a holy awe or a reverence of God and his laws, which springs from a just view and real love of the divine character of God, leading the subjects, you and I, of it to hate and shun everything that can offend such a holy being and inclining them to aim perfect to perfect obedience. This is familial or filial fear. What is slavish fear? He says that slavish fear is the effect or the consequence of guilt. Have you ever felt that kind of fear before? You ever done something and then you automatically feel the guilt? Or, or maybe because you fear what other people think of you, you feel guilty and it's really not a real guilt, it's just you have this insecurity. This is slavish fear. And so here's the key point this morning. The key point is this. Fear of man fosters ignorance, but fear of God brings true knowledge and wisdom. We're gonna break that down. The first one here is fear of man. A guy by the name of William Gurnall in the 17th century, he was an English author and he was an Anglican clergyman. He said these words, we fear men so much because we fear God so little. 
me say that again. We fear men so much because we fear God so little. Process that for a minute. What are some things that you fear? What are the things you're most afraid of? Because some of the authors I was reading over the past several weeks in regard to fear said the thing you fear the most is the thing you worship. Take it for what it's worth. I don't know, process that with me for a minute. You see, the fear of man that we talk about, uh, that Daniel Webster talks about, is this slavish kind of fear. This type of fear deflates all courage in a man or a woman, and it deflates this boldness that we, are, we were created in the image of God to have. Now, I want you to understand, courage and boldness are not arrogance, okay? Courage and boldness means pressing into something and not arrogantly or pompously walking around with a braggadocious attitude, okay? Courage and boldness are what we as believers in Christ are called to have. It's actually what every human being is called to have because you were created in the image of God. But you can only find your true identity when you find it in Christ and surrendering to his will and his ways for your life. It doesn't mean that automatically every fear is eradicated from your life when you come to Christ, but what it does remind us of is that there is a greater fear we should have of God than we should have of man. It should be reversed. But I see this infiltrating the church more than ever. Not because of the coronavirus. I'm not going to get on a soapbox about that. That has been such a polarizing issue. Mask versus no mask. Hand washing versus no hand washing. Let's not get into that. See, I believe there is a middle road between two extremes that Jesus calls us to walk of, a, of common sense and, and, and human justice to bring about his good and perfect will. And the enemy, and there is an enemy, but he gets us focused so much on you and I or them out there that we don't fight the real enemy anymore. We fear men more than we fear God, and the culture lies in chaos. Am I right? See, the problem is the church, instead of being a voice of reason and a voice of truth within society, to rise above the fear, the panic, and the chaos, and to be a light to the world, has decided to cocoon itself off because we're afraid of what the world thinks of us. And the issue is, when we're afraid of what the world thinks of us, we become paralyzed. We won't take a stage or a platform for the truth, because truth is not relative, it is real. And we, and we who live in Christ and believe in Christ know that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And it's more than just a salvation thing we talk about. It is about a way out of pain and darkness. It doesn't mean you won't have sorrows this side of life. But what it does mean is that you can walk through the sorrows because he's one who goes through the deep, dark valley of the shadow of death with you. So you don't have to fear what? Evil. The fear of man does several different things. I read this in an article on a website called Active Christianity. Fear shows itself in many different ways. See if you can relate to these different ways. The first is need for approval or maybe the fear of disapproval. Have you ever struggled with that? One of the, and I'm not going to stereotype all pastors here, but this is a shortcoming of many pastors is the fear of approval. 
or disapproval. Many of us, and I've had to struggle with this all my life, I want, I'm a people pleaser by nature. I, I, uh, I think many pastors are because they, they are people oriented. They want to minister and reach the lost and they want to help the hurt, the broken, the downcast. And they want to be able to stand with those who are even joyous and walk with them and cheer them on. But when push comes to shove, we fear approval, so we fear disapproval so much that we won't speak truth and love when it's necessary. Has that ever happened to you? Why? Because the world has told us if you speak truth and love, you're being judgmental. Do you see what the enemy does with our language to attack us? Oh, you're being judgmental. No, 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 I love you. I'm gonna tell you what I'm seeing here and I want you to see the problem that exists, not just in your life, but in the culture because I want you to be free. I want you to experience hope and justice and truth and love. I want you to know that you're loved, not just by me, but by God above. And you continuing this pattern of behavior is not going to lead you there. It's going to lead you to a place of destruction. It's going to tear you up, and it's going to leave a wake of destruction in the relationships you have in life. Well, you're just judging me. And so we fear as believers in Christ and as the church that if we do that, we're going to be judged. And so we just zip it. Now, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, hey, don't go around trying to get little splinters out of people's eyes when you've got a huge log sticking out of yours, right? I'm paraphrasing. Read it for yourself. That is the Brandon... Revised Standard Version. But think about that. He never said, don't go help somebody who has a speck in their eye. He just says, get that freaking log out of your eye before you go do it. Sorry. I've been building up. He says, he says listen, you got this little splinter in your eye. If you say that to somebody else, Make sure that you're not being a hypocrite about it because you yourself know that you have shortcomings and failures too. What Jesus is saying is, listen, go in the right attitude. Go in the right mentality. When you go to somebody else to talk to them about a problem you see in their life, make sure you have checked your own spirit before you do it. And make sure that you humbly come before them in love and judiciously bring them the truth that can set them free. Don't gouge that out with your fat fingers to try to get it out of their eye. Go in there with a precision tool of love and be able to prick that thing out of their eye. You know what I'm, you know what I'm talking about? Okay. What does fear of man do? Now, that was just one of the bullet points. Um, <laughs> the need for acceptance. Have you ever wrestled with that? Within a group? Uh, how about peer pressure? You ever struggled with peer pressure? Uh, the need for honor or respect, need to be respected. Well, I won't respect unless you respect me. See, that's what fear drives us to. See, here's the interesting thing. As believers in Christ, we are to be so countercultural, so counter the world, that we give respect even if it's not given. That we give love, even if that love is rejected and if that love doesn't come back. And actually, Jesus said to love your, thank you, enemies. 
Do good to them who persecute you. Pray for those who want to do you harm. And remember, when they hate you, they hated me first. Remember, when people hate you, you're in good company. That's a hard thing to do. I've had a lot of people hate me, and as a people pleaser, I'm telling you, it kills my soul. But there's one person I care about the most that I please. And that's the one thing in my life that I strive for is to please God alone, even when all others may not like me. How about fear of criticism? Every pastor, again, I'll put myself in We fear criticism. Most of us, again, I know there's some pastors, I don't fear criticism. Bring it on! I'm not one of those guys. I'm not one of those guys. I don't like to be criticized because I'm like, oh, did I? My wife could tell you, did did I say that too harshly today? Was that really bad? Should I have worded that differently? You know, and I have been criticized, not as bad as I hear other pastors have been. I've been, I've had it pretty easy, but occasionally I'll get criticized for something I've said or something I didn't say or, you know, any number of things. Because when you're in a place like this and you're preaching to the masses or the groups out there, guess what? You're kind of an easy target. Uh, And I'm not saying I say everything perfectly. I have said things before that I've had to correct because, oh, did I really say that? And I've had to get back up here and change, change my rhetoric a little bit. But we fear criticism. What about fear of humiliation? Right? So we will stop and not do anything instead of doing something for fear of being humiliated by doing it. Okay? What can these things lead to? What can these kinds of fears lead to? Second-guessing our decisions? When you know you made the right decision to begin with. See, God has a still, small voice. Rarely does he yell. I want you to hear me on this. More often, if you're a student of the word, from Genesis to Revelation, you can hear or see this God in Scripture who is patient, long-suffering, merciful, forgiving. Yes, even in the Old Testament. Because if you read the Old Testament through the eyes of love, you see a God who has spent centuries waiting on his people to align with his purposes. Instead, they keep doing what? Breaking away from it. And then we say, oh, he's so mean. He's wiping them out. He has every right to wipe anybody out he wants to. Why? Let me explain this. We have all sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. Is there anyone perfect in this world? Jesus was the only one. And I said this this week to a few people. When Jesus was approached by one of the religious teachers and leaders and said, hey, hey, good teacher, uh, you know, what should we do? X, 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 Y, 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 whatever, fill in the blank. And what does Jesus do? He stops the guy and he says, whoa, 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 why do you call me good? There's no one good but the Father. And now he's doing two things here. The first thing he's doing is he's saying, are you recognizing that I and the Father are one? That we are both the same? That's the first thing he's doing. The second thing he's doing is, there is no one good but the Father. What does that mean for everybody else? If there's only one good being in the whole universe, what should be reserved for us? death. 
So is God wrong whenever he promotes justice and wrath in the Old Testament after saying over and over and over and over and over again, don't do this, you'll die. Don't do this, you'll die. That has been his main narrative from the beginning of time. Adam and Eve, there's a tree right, actually Adam, there's a tree right here in the garden of Eden. It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat it because when you eat it, you will die. Flash forward centuries, you have the Israelites. Okay, here are your 10 commandments. Here's what you can do, here's what you can't do. Because if you don't, you could die. Don't do this, you'll die. Don't do this, you'll die. Well, what did they do? They did it! And they continued to do it. And they continued to do it. Don't touch that light socket, don't touch it, don't put your hand on the stove. You get burnt, don't put your hand there, don't do it, don't do it, until finally we say, go ahead, do it. I mean, maybe doing it'll teach you not to do it. And the Israelites keep touching that dang stove. And we get all uppity about it when we look at the Old Testament, but we are in the same boat, except we have something they didn't have. We have salvation through Christ Jesus as our Lord and Savior, but it's only those who proclaim that with their lips and believe it in their hearts who are saved. That's how they overcome and conquer sin and death, so that they don't keep touching that blasted stove. Don't do it, you'll die. I tell you what, I will do all of the stuff for you that you can't do for yourself and I'll take your punishment, and I'll die. Will that work? I mean, that's all I got. That's all I have in my repertoire. That's it. If I do this, there's nothing else that will suffice for your salvation. There's no other God, there's no other way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's not because he's trying to be a meanie or exclusive. Now, you could go this way, but I'm not gonna let you. No, it's because there's really no other way. Because you have to believe an all-powerful, all-loving God would have made multiple ways if it was a possibility. But guess what? There was no other way. So how do we overcome the fear of man? How do we overcome sin and death? This is the next point. Actually, let me hit these scriptures real quick. It's one from the New Testament. You've probably heard a bunch during this quarantine. And it's this, 2 Timothy 1, 7. For God did not give us a spirit of fear or timidity, but of power and of love and of self-discipline. He's telling Timothy, this is Paul, the apostle, who wrote most of the New Testament, speaking to this young what we would consider millennial today, going to the church at Ephesus, which was a pain in the tuchus, because the, you read about them in Revelation too, the first, one of the seven churches, read about their shortcomings, all right? But the book of Ephesus is written by Paul too, but First and Second Timothy are written to Timothy, the leader of the church at Ephesus. And when we read in Second Timothy, I'm saying, dude, listen, Stop with the fear and the shaking in your boots. Stand proud for your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God didn't give you a spirit of timidity or fear, but one of power through not your own strength, but the Holy Spirit. 
and of love, not through your own strength, but because he first loved you, and of self-discipline. So you don't do the things you shouldn't do, and you can only do that through the power of the Holy Spirit. And in addition, the psalmist writes these words in Psalm 56, verse 11. I, in God, I have put my trust from the lips of David or from the pen of David. In God, I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Have you ever asked yourself that question when you start to fear other people or what other people think? Have you ever said, you know what? I trust in you, God. What can man really do to me? I have no reason to be afraid. But there is a reason to have fear. Let's look at the next one, the fear of God. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, reads like this. Solomon wrote basically two-thirds, if not more, of the Proverbs. Solomon was David's son, King David. Proverbs 1, 7, he says, The fear of the Lord is the foundation of true knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction or wisdom and discipline. The kind or the type of fear that we should have for God is what Daniel Webster defined as filial, not slavish, but filial love. And let me look at this, the Jewish encyclopedia. I rarely go to the Jewish encyclopedia, but thought I would this time. And from the 1901 version of the Jewish encyclopedia, it describes this kind of fear, the fear of God this way. The man or the woman who fears God will refrain from doing the things that would be displeasing to him, the things that would make him uh, himself unworthy of God's regard. You see, fear of God does not make men shrink from him as one would from a tyrant or a wild beast. It draws them nearer to him and fills them with reverential awe. The better way to translate the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, or uh, the beginning of, yeah, that's right, knowledge, is a foundation of knowledge, is to say the awe of God. It's like standing in this just wonder and amazement that drives us to our knees and on our faces before someone who is so majestic and powerful. The church in America has done, I, I believe, a great disservice in not teaching about a healthy respect and a fear of God. And let me explain that for a minute. Instead, we have made God out to be our buddy, this old gray-haired grandfather kind of figure who sits in a rocking chair on the porch, you know, just talking like this. Oh, don't do that. <laughs> or we've made him an out-of-date relic because our science has so far exceeded a God idea that science is now our God and our culture, and so if it can't be proven by science, then it's not real. Right? But even some of the top scientists in our culture today will say, I can't explain certain aspects of creation. There are huge missing pieces that just mess with my philosophical and my scientific mindset that I just don't understand this. I mean, everything points to a designer because there's an immaculate design to everything. Even simple, single-celled creatures are so majestically designed, but I won't believe that because my mindset won't let me believe this. There are atheists and agnostic scientists, physicists that will say that today. What do we do with all that? Why don't we, why don't we 
believe that God is truly a person to be reckoned with. He's a buddy. He's a friend. Gosh darn it. We're going fishing today. Now, and there's an aspect of, don't get me wrong. I think we've overinflated the buddy system with God that we've neglected the holy reverence and fear of God in our culture, but most specifically in our churches. And let me explain why I believe that. Because our buddy wouldn't come down hard on us. Our buddy would see, oh, shame, shame. You shouldn't do that. <laughs> Don't do that. Right? When we mess up or slip up. When we have our little buddy who's like a peer next to us that we hang out with most of the time. We're like, oh, he, he would never judge me. It's not a big deal. He's fine. Uh, he'll forgive me. He'll let me off the hook on this. And see, so we shortchange this, this all-powerful God in exchange for this really meek and mild, not going to hurt a fly kind of God. And this is why we struggle with the differences between a vision of God in the New Testament and a vision of God in the Old Testament is because we don't see them as the same God, but they are one and the same. He's the same yesterday, today, forever. And again, it depends on the lens you look at him through, but the lens of love is what I choose to look at him through because that's what John tells me in 1 John that God is. God is love. And so if I change my perspective in the Old Testament, it's not like I'm just doing a quick mind switch to say, oh, I'm going to view him as love now, but is not his justice and his wrath an act of love? What would a world be like if there truly was zero justice? Now, I know that's being tested right now in our culture, but what would the world look like with anarchy and no laws and no rules and no justice system whatsoever? More than chaos, it would be horrendous. I mean, what would, if there is no law and no lawgiver, then we devolve. We don't evolve. This, is, this goes against the grain of science too. If we consider that they believe in the evolutionary theory, then we should be evolving to be better. What does the world look like? Tell me today, what does the world look like that you see on the news, read in the paper, hear on the radio? It's crazy. And it's only by the grace and the power and the forgiveness and the mercy of God, he doesn't just pull the plug and say, I'm done. I can't do it anymore. You guys are wearing me out. Thank you, God, for being patient and long-suffering. Thank you, yes, for being my friend, but for most importantly, for being my Savior. Because only a good and mighty and all-powerful God can be a Savior. Now, I had a lot more notes there, and I don't want to keep you too long, but I've been building up for a while. All right. Did you say yeah? Thanks a lot, buddy. I love you too. Melissa Denisi, co-founder of Self Talk the Gospel, writes... When we live out of the fear of what people think of us, we live paralyzed. When we fear God more than anything, our obedience becomes easier, decisions become clearer, and life is lived with purpose. In his books, Kingdoms and Conflict, the late Chuck Colson uh, quotes from one of the most famed atheistic philosophers of modern times. Have you ever heard of Frederick Nietzsche? 
He's the one who coined the term God is dead, or at least in his books we get that, the, uh, not theology, but that philosophy. This is what Nietzsche writes in his book. Have you not heard of the madman who lit the the lamp in the bright morning and went to the marketplace crying ceaselessly, I seek God, I seek God. There were many among those standing there who didn't believe in God, so he made them laugh. Oh, is God lost? One of them said. Has he gone astray like a little child, said another, or maybe he's hiding Has he gone aboard a ship and emigrated to a different country? So they laughed and they shouted to one another, and the man sprang into their midst and looked daggers to them, through them. Where is God, he cried, I tell you. We've killed him, you and I. We are his killers. But how have we done this? How can we swallow up the sea? Who gave us a sponge to wipe away the horizon? What will we do as earth is set loose from the sun. You see, Nietzsche's point was not that God does not exist, but that God has become irrelevant. Now, he wrote this back in the 18, 17, 1800s. Has God become more relevant or less relevant since his time? Men and women may assert that God exists or that he does not, but it makes little difference either way. God is, de- uh, God is dead not because he doesn't exist, but because we live, we play, we procreate, we govern, and we die as though he doesn't exist. Let me say that again. Chuck Colson writes, God is dead not because he does not exist, but because we live, we play, we procreate, that's called sex, uh, we govern and we die as though he doesn't exist. We don't fear him enough to, play with, to not play with fire. Oh, of course, you expect the pastor to stand up and take a solid stance for truth, but there are pastors that won't do that anymore. Not because they need to be hellfire and brimstone preachers, and I know I've been yelling a lot today. Please forgive me. I told you, it's like a pressure cooker. And uh, you hit that little thing, it just goes, and I'm not angry. But I am disconcerted. I'm, I'm a little, I've been struggling with what is the church's role in society today? Because if God is irrelevant to the masses in our culture, what does that leave the church? The church has become irrelevant, yes? Well, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. No, you don't. But there's, just something, there's something about assembling yourselves together. Whether at home, again, I, want, I don't want you to feel guilty either way. Whether at home or whether here, it's those people that thumb their nose at the church and say, I just don't have the time. I don't have the time to be with other believers. We weren't created to live alone. We were created to be in fellowship and in partnership with one another. You see, that's where the Holy Spirit dwells. Yes, he dwells in your heart when you receive the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ into your life. He dwells within you, but he dwells among the body of Christ, helping them to do even more as the body of Christ than they ever could without him. Where we fear, where we fear 
Where the fear of God exists, the presence of God dwells. Let me say that again. Where the fear of God exists, the presence of God dwells, and order comes out of chaos. Where the fear of man exists and the fear of God does not, the moral fabric of a society unravels and the conscience of man is dulled. Does that sound familiar? Have we been lulled to sleep by fearing man more than fearing God? See, I I think it's time for the church to awaken to the reality of the might and the majesty of God once again. To not fear what man can do to the body, but fear what God can do to the body and the soul. I, I think it's time for the church to cast off restraint with regard to our love for God, unabashedly to stand for his truth and his purposes and to stand in awe and the power and authority that comes from his throne. I think it's time to fall on our knees in worship and in repentance, seeking his face and being obedient to his word and operating from the guidance and the strength of the Holy Spirit. And I think it's time once again, honestly, ladies and gentlemen, I think it's time once again for the church not to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God at work saving everyone who believes. As though, as our worship team comes forward, I just want to say these few words so you can get where you need to go. And it's this. Um, I think God has sent some warning shots across the bow. I've been praying about this. We've talked as a staff and as a board and through my prayer time. It's not that God is trying to toy around with us, but you see in the Old Testament, there were many times where God would try to do something to wake his people up to the reality of their dire situation. And I don't think that he is not doing that today. I think what he's done is he's shooting across the bow to wake his people up in this nation to say, get on your feet. It's time to be the church. You've been lulled to sleep by the culture in which you live. You have been lulled to sleep like a chloroform napkin placed over your face. You are knocked out, but you're not knocked out because of the Holy Spirit. You're knocked out because of the culture. Church, it's time to take a stand for the truth. It's time to take a stand for the truth and to take a stand for the truth by speaking it in love, to be the hands and the feet of Christ once again, and not just do the routine, check your time card at church and go home and not think about him for the rest of the week. Church, the church in in America or the church in the world is not gonna be as powerful as it could until it takes a stand for truth. And we don't go with the bully pulpit or uh, the bully club of the Bible and beat people over the head with it. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about going door to door, but I am talking about being light and salt wherever you go. You should be bringing the fresh aroma of the love of God wherever you step. And not everybody's going to like that because when you take the light of God into the world, it illuminates what's in the dark. And a lot of people who hide in the dark or who hide what they've had been doing in the dark don't like that to be illuminated. So you will be on the receiving end of persecution when you do that. But take heart. Remember, when they hate you, they hated him first and you're in good company. Don't fear man. 
but have the fear of the Lord as you go about your daily routines. Let me pray over you. Oh, and really quickly, how do we do social distancing with praying at the altar? Because some of you may feel compelled to come forward. As we've said, if you want people to pray with you, you come to my right, your left, there's an altar down here, and we do pray with people at the altar. If you want to be prayed with, you'll come to my right, your left, because that's your way of saying, I don't mind if somebody comes and prays with me. If you don't want to be prayed with and you want to social distance, you come to my left, your right, and please space yourself out. You know how to do that. But guess what? You can pray where you are. God, God doesn't only hear you up here. It's not like there's a microphone straight into God's throne room up here, okay? But if you wanna be prayed with, come up to my right, your left, or if you wanna be left alone, but you do wanna come forward, come to my left, your right. You will be left alone over here and you will be spaced out. And if there's not enough room, pray on the steps here, okay? Or pray where you are. Let me pray over you. Father, thank you for these men and women who have come to join and worship today. I pray that your word has hit them where they needed to hear it. And God, you have pierced their souls with the power of your Holy Spirit to bring them to a place of truth, of wholeness, of understanding, and of transformation because of the love of Jesus Christ in this place. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the power of your Holy Spirit, which transforms lives for your kingdom and your glory. We pray that every person in bondage in this place, be it through physical malady or infirmity or mental stress or emotional stress or baggage from the past would be loosed and set free from that in the name of Jesus this morning. And we pray that not one person would step outside of this place without truly coming to the knowledge and the truth of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We love you, Father. We give you all praise, glory, and honor, for it's in Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.